Excited to spend a little time with you. Here are three verses for this week. If you'd like to continue to memorize some of the verses that go along with the Three Circles conversation, I'll make more of those available next Wednesday, and we will go through that and many other practical ways to share your faith, how to have conversations. We're going to get very hands-on next week. And so your handout, you can download from the website tomorrow, right? Tomorrow. And uh, there are tw- uh, 20 copies of the handout going to be on the front row. You can pick up at the end if you don't want to download those copies. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for the opportunity tonight to dig into your word, to spend some time talking about a very challenging and um, very great honor as a follower of Christ. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage us through your spirit and your word. Thank you that we get to explore more tonight of what it means to be a disciple. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, what I'd like to do first is just kind of go through our definition of what it means to be a disciple. But tonight I want to do it in a way that is a little bit more reflective of our vision statement. And so a disciple is a person who loves God. And here's where we are seeing that pursues experiences of a relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, so that's where that's found in our vision statement. And then the next part of our vision statement is loves people, right? So a disciple is a person who loves God and loves people. Now, the, the two sets of people that we need to love, the church and the world. Now, the, what you'll see around the campus is loves the church loves the community. That's how you're seeing it on the banners around campus. But here's what a disciple is. A disciple is someone who loves God, loves people. The people that we are loving are the church and the world. Certainly that's reflective of the word community. That's what we're talking about when we say community. And so that's, that's our vision statement, how it falls out in this concept of making disciples. Now, the piece that we've added into this, in this study is the idea that the disciple loves God, loves people, so others can do the same. That's the reproducing lifestyle right there. So we're not just loving God and loving people as an end in itself. We're loving God and loving people, specifically the church and the world, so that others can do the same thing. So we're having these experiences of relationship with Jesus. We're having these vital involvements in the community of believers, the church. We're seeking to bless the world. We're doing all of this so that we become reproducing in our lifestyle. Disciple makers. Everybody get it? So now when you hear me say on Sunday mornings or otherwise, we love God, love people, I want you to have in your mind what this really means. That we're having a regular experience, a pattern of experiences of knowing Christ. That we're making investments of time 
investments of effort. We're having increases of knowledge that's seasoned by change that we want to share with other people. We're having this experience with Jesus Christ. We're loving people, and that first means we're loving the church. And then we're seeking to bless the world, loving the world, seeking to bless the world. We want them to ultimately hear about Christ. That's the greatest display of love that we're called to give to the world, the gospel. And we're all doing this so that everybody that we're loving will do the same thing. That's the goal. We want people to love God and love people so that they can help others do the same. Everybody got it? That's who we are. That's where we're headed. That defines us. That's First Baptist Church. From here to eternity, this is what we are. Okay? All right. So now let's, let me do one more thing for you that will hopefully help you a little bit. And I'll let you ask any questions before we move into tonight's topic. All right. We talked about we're going to love God. We're going to love the church and we're going to love the world. So we're going to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. This is who we are giving our lives for. This is our, he is our loyalty. He is our everything. We are loving God. And then we are loving the church. And then we are loving or blessing the world. Now the reason I use the term bless the world instead of love the world is not because I don't want us to love the world. I do. But our love for the world is different than our love for the church. Our love for the church is more than our love for the world. Our love for the world is best expressed in seeking to bless the world because the world may not return my love, right? But my love to the world should be a blessing to the world. My living in this world should be a blessing to the world so they will see Christ. So I'm wanting to love them by being a blessing to all people. So I'm loving God, loving the church, loving the world. Now a lot of you have been wrestling with this idea that I presented last week. Well, what does that mean for my family? Because I'm loving the church more than my family. What about my family? Does that mean that I'm leaving my family at home and going to the church building seven nights a week because I love the church more than my family? No, that's not what that means. So this will help you, I hope. So I want you to think about it like this. Your family is going to fall into one of those two categories, right? Either your family's going to be a part of the church because they've decided to follow Jesus Christ. Your family's going to be a part of the world because they've not decided to follow Jesus Christ. Either way, they're still an object of your love. And they're an object of your love so that they can do the same thing you're doing, love God and love people. You got it? So, if my family is members of the church, they've decided to follow Christ... And they're a part of his body and they're functioning in this local church. My family's a part of the church. Then I've got to consider my love for the church and loving my family. And my love for my family is really my first level expression of love for the church. So when I say I'm loving the church more than I'm loving my family, I'm making sure that I'm loving my family within the context of loving the church first. So that my love for Lindley is not just my love for her as my spouse, But my love for her is my love for her because she's a member of the body of Christ. That's more significant than her being my wife. Agreed? It's much more significant that Lindley is a member of the church than a member of my family. And that ought to drive my love for her to a different level. So on two accounts, my love for my wife should be motivated and deepened because I love the church most. Here are the two accounts. If I love the church most, 
then I understand what Jesus thinks about the church because I'm esteeming the church like he does. And if I understand how he esteems the church and I'm supposed to love Lindley like he loves the church, my love for her will be increased, right? If I understand that she's a member of the body of Christ and that's more important than her being my wife, then my love for her as my wife is gonna be driven by my desire for her to be a faithful member of the body of Christ, which is far better for her than just my love for her in hopes that she would be a better wife. See the difference? See how this fits? Starting to click now? I was not at all implying that your family is unimportant. I'm implying that the importance of your family is at its right perspective when the church is seen correctly. If we don't get that right, we have a great tendency to idolize the family, to want our marital relationships to fulfill things it's not designed to fulfill, and we want our kids to pursue an end that is not one for giving their lives for the cause of Christ. We say things like, I want my kids to grow up, have a good education, go and get a great job, and God forbid they go to Africa. That's what we end up saying. And we mean it. I want them to go and follow Christ. I'm just certain that God's will for them is going to be that they live two blocks away and I get to love my grandkids all the time. See? That, that's what happens with us. And you know, that's counterproductive if we are loving God and loving people so that others can do the same. That's not, that's not right. The Bible does not tell us to raise our kids so that they're really close to us. And they were happy grandparents. They tell us to raise our kids so that they'll follow Jesus Christ and take the gospel to the ends of the earth and die for him. That just might mean we're very sad grandparents, temporarily. But if we believe in how God loves the church, if we are faithful as his bride, no matter what sacrifice that means for me temporarily, I will have eternal joy. Are you catching what I'm getting at here? Does this sound like the easier way or the harder way? hard away right welcome being a disciple isn't that what we're discovering oh but it's so worth it isn't it I mean what else what else would we want to spend our lives for everything else is a waste just fleeting we, we together here all right any questions any questions Yes. Uh huh. Right, so how do you know if someone's in the church or in the world if they're actually in the church building and looking like they may be a part of the church, but we have reasons to believe, I'm not so sure. So, um, the Bible clearly encourages us as members of the body of Christ to judge those within the church on the basis of the fruit we see. It does not tell us to condemn on the basis of the fruit we see, but to judge and then discern how we are to act towards them. When we see fruit conducive to one who is following Christ, we seek to be an encourager and walk alongside them and be fellowshipping with them, all those kinds of things. 
we see activity or fruit in their life that's not congruent with being a part of the church, even though they're coming to the church building, we are to practice loving confrontation and rebuke. Hey, I just want to know what's going on inside because happening on the outside makes me wonder what's going on on the inside. And I'd, if you saw that in me, I'd want you to do that for me. And so that's very, very difficult to do, but very, very necessary biblically for the church to function like it's intended to function. Scripture is very clear that we are given the opportunity and the privilege and the honor of walking with each other, both encouraging, exhorting, rebuking, and confronting. And we are, because we are seeking to love the church, going to do that in a way that is more selfless and serving and concerning for them than it is going to be out of, you know, I'm really angry at you because of what you do. I'm really bitter that you are doing what you're doing and I really want you to know how mad I am at you for that. That's not loving the church. That's having your own vendetta. And God does not look kindly upon someone who takes his place as judge. Our judgments lead to loving people. God's judgments will ultimately lead to final verdicts. We don't make verdicts. We make pleas of love compassion and concern does that help okay good question next any other questions yeah yeah right right so they're in the world and what you're going to say is i want to bless them i want the fact that i'm in their life for them to believe that's a blessing i want them to be grateful i'm in their life I want them to be thankful for my love and my care and my concern. I want to demonstrate godliness in every way. I want to communicate the gospel in a way that they know it's coming from a heart of concern and love. I want them to be blessed by my presence in the family. Now, at some point along the way, people can decide they don't want your kind of blessing. You know, and at that point, You've got to keep trying just to love them, pray for them, honor what they've communicated to you, and keep being an opportunity for blessing. It can be difficult, no doubt. Yeah, it gets a little fuzzy in there. Yeah. Okay, anybody else? Okay, let's dig in because we've got a lot to do tonight. Here we go. Disciples seek the lost. Anybody growing up love the story of Zacchaeus? I liked that story. I always thought it was a great story. Some guy climbing up a tree because he was too short, especially when I was a kid because I couldn't see things because I was short. And so I love that story thinking of this grown man climbing in a tree to see Jesus and Jesus takes the time to notice him and comes over and invites him to spend some time together. He goes to his house and eats and Zacchaeus has this great change of heart. And he says, anybody that I've taken money from, I'm going to give back many times over. And I'm going to change the way I'm going to live from this day forward. And Jesus says, salvation has come to this man's house today because Jesus saw what happened in his heart. And then Jesus said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. And I love that. Zacchaeus was a guy that people hated. No one liked him in his hometown. He was an outcast and a traitor. If you've done much research into what it was like to be a tax collector, um, it was not a favorable position in the community. People couldn't stand them. 
because they were exacting money for the Romans and keeping a portion for themselves. And the more money they could exact, the more rich they would become. And obviously Zacchaeus had done a really good job of robbing people, his own people. But Jesus went after him. I love that story. If we're following Jesus Christ, if we're followers of him, then we are seeking the lost. And and the scripture makes it very clear that we are to take up this role. And it turns it a little bit on itself. And instead of us seeking the lost as if we had something to offer, we're seeking the lost on behalf of Jesus. Jesus went to be with the Father, sent his spirit to indwell each one of us so that he through us could continue seeking the lost. So we are seeking the lost on behalf of Christ. The Bible calls that ambassadors. We are ambassadors of God, making an appeal for God that people would be reconciled to God. And the reason we are great ambassadors for Christ is because Christ fulfills, fills us with his Holy Spirit and then we have experienced reconciliation ourselves. So we're able to go out and say, I know Christ, he's with me, I understand his word, his spirit shows me and I have experienced the very thing that Jesus is offering you through me he sent me to offer to you what only he can offer for you to be reconciled to God through faith in him and I get to tell you because he is wanting you to know and the way he wants you to know is through my mouth because I am a witness of reconciliation it's real it happened to me and he wants me to tell you I'm his ambassador I'm his highest ranking official and I I represent him I'm speaking on his behalf I have been with him I have heard him I have experienced him he has reconciled me and I'm here speaking to you for him he wants you to be reconciled to him not only does he want me to speak to you on his behalf he wants me to get on my knees and beg you to be reconciled to him and I can beg you on my behalf because I've been reconciled to him won't you consider Jesus' words and gift of reconciliation won't you hear my appeal and Jesus' appeal you see that picture that's who we are as disciples we are seeking the lost on Jesus' behalf we are as ambassadors speaking to those who know him and represent him in everything we say and do we're seeking the lost that's our great honor our great privilege this comes out of 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 verses 18 through 20 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 18 through 20 now the first the first passage that I mentioned is found in Luke chapter 19. That's the story of Zacchaeus, and you can read that there. And the specific verse is verse 10. But the 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20 is this ministry of reconciliation. I want to read this passage to you real quickly. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation, namely that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. Isn't that beautiful? What honor, what privilege to speak for Jesus Christ. Your words to people about Christ are not words about Christ. Your words to people about Christ are Jesus' words through you for Jesus so that they're hearing the actual appeal of Christ through you. 
It's an amazing honor that we are called to represent Christ. And the reason that each one of us has this great privilege is because Jesus knew it was better for him to go be with the Father and send his spirit to indwell all those who've been reconciled through faith in him to be his spokespersons all over the face of the earth. Do you see the role you're called to play in your place where you live, where God has placed you in the time he has placed you? You are a voice simply cannot afford to be silenced. You are the voice of Christ begging for reconciliation in the circles of the people you know. This is a great honor and a great privilege. I fear, though, that when we talk about evangelism, Oftentimes, it's more like a bad word than a great honor. Makes people uncomfortable, right? But it is an amazing honor to be able to speak for someone. Especially when that someone is Jesus. Back in 1999, when I lived in College Station, um, I was at the bonfire site right after it fell. I had a student who was on site when it fell, was not injured too terribly bad in the, in the experience, and he called me immediately and said, bonfire has fallen, it's like a war zone, come quick. I went up there immediately. It was unlike anything I've ever experienced in my life. It was traumatic and awful. After everything was done, um, I was the college pastor of a very large college ministry there in Bryan College Station at Central Baptist Church. And we wanted to have, we had one of our students that was in our church was killed on the bonfire stack. Several others have attended. A lot of the other kids were associated with us. And we wanted to do a memorial service. And so we did this enormous memorial service. And uh, Governor George W. Bush at the time came he was in the process of campaigning for the president. It looked at that time as if he would be elected. And we knew that it was just a matter of time before he would become the next president of the United States. So here he is, the memorial. I'm hanging out with he and his, his bodyguards in a back room and just a few of us. And I'm able to have a face-to-face -face conversation with him. I mean, he's, he has no personal space. I don't know if you've ever been around him, but he does not have personal space. He gets right up in your face when he's talking to you. And so he's like right here with me. I mean, he's taller than I am, so he's like right here with me. And uh, we're having this conversation. And I thought it was remarkable that he had an opportunity to have a stage of that magnitude at a critical point in campaigning. And he said, if I took the stage at this moment in my life, I would change the stage from what it needs to be to what it should not be. And he chose to sit down on the front row of our worship center and he worshiped the Lord the entire time. He was certain, he was absolutely certain that what he would have said would be represented by those who spoke. He had no question. Well, I happened to be one of those that spoke that day. It's pretty cool to think that the next president of the United States was confident that I would be able to say what he would have said if he'd been speaking. Do you, do you know that Jesus holds a much higher level of confidence in you 
He has no question whether or not you are able to say what he would say because he has made you ministers of reconciliation. It's not what you're striving to become. It's who you are. And he has utmost confidence that you can speak for him. Do you believe that? He thinks much more highly of you than you do. So let's talk about evangelism. And let's try to make sure we leave tonight thinking much more of the honor that we have been called to and much less of the issues that prevent us from living in this honor. Aren't we all on the same page tonight that there are things that keep us from being the ambassador we're called to be? There are ways we think about this, fears that we have about this, there are impressions that we sense about this that keep us from being the ambassador that we know God has made us to be and called us to be. And so tonight I want to kind of just kind of rip some of, that th- some of that away so we could leave tonight feeling more empowered and excited about this great honor than maybe we felt about it in a long time, maybe your entire life. So let's just try to rip some of that stuff off and let's try to make sure we leave tonight as fired up about sharing Christ with people around us we've ever been because Jesus is as fired up as he's ever been about you being an ambassador and he believes in you. He believes in you. All right? So, number one, number one, something you need to believe It will help you move past an inappropriate view of evangelism. Number one, there are no coincidental or random meetings, occurrences, or circumstances. There is nothing by chance. Acts chapter 17, verses 26 and 27 just talks about that God has placed every one of us where we live, when we live, so that we might see him and know him. There are no chances, there are no coincidences, there are no random acts. You are exactly where you are by design. You work where you work, you live where you live, you are where you are because God wants you to be there to know him and make him known. Period. So, we need to see every encounter as an opportunity. We need to be ready every single moment of every day, anytime, anywhere, to be an ambassador for Christ, to speak on His behalf. We need to begin each day with a sense of expectation. I am going to be in places today where God has already divinely planned for me to speak for Christ to people he places me around. Do do you see that? You've got to look at your world like this because this is how God has designed it. This is how it's set up. There is nothing random. You don't get stuck in traffic for 45 minutes and start thinking about calling so-and-so and it's random. You are an ambassador you don't get stuck in line at the grocery store at rush hour behind six baskets that have 70 items in the 15 or less item row and it'd be a coincidence. 
with expectation, you think to yourself, what are these people's problem? Oh, I know. They need to be spoken to on behalf of Jesus. <laughs> there is justice in the world and 75 items and the 15 item limit is not just. Let me tell you about Jesus. You know, I mean, you are where you are, when you are, so you can be a spokesperson for Jesus Christ. You need to look at your world like that. You work here where you work not because of a paycheck. We've talked about that. You work where you work because you're an ambassador. And you have a soil in which to sow seeds of truth. And it is your soil to till and to sow into. You know, the truth is that most people aren't going to just show up at our church. I mean, it's just not going to happen much. I mean, occasionally it will happen that somebody drives by and wants to go to our church, but most of the time they're people that are already very familiar with church. People that aren't familiar with church, that don't hear the message of Christ, that think weird things about what's happening in this building, are not just going to come in here. Most of them are not going to come into this place. Most of them are not going to start a conversation out at the grocery store, at the movie theater, and ask, you know, I've been thinking a lot lately about Jesus Christ. Is there anybody here that could tell me how to be saved? It's just not likely to happen. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it's, it's not likely to happen. So, so here's the thing. We've got to look at all the activities in our life as opportunities to be an ambassador for Christ and speak on his behalf to a people who are not listening to him. The Bible says that he is speaking by way of creation and the people are ignoring what he is saying. And we have an opportunity to speak words of Christ that break through the barriers and the hardness of heart that have been created by a person ignoring that Jesus is speaking. We have the opportunity to speak and we can pray for those opportunities. We need to see our lives as an opportunity to share about Christ. Sometimes I think we, we sometimes pray for opportunities to share about Christ. And I'm not saying that's wrong, to say, Lord, give me an opportunity to share about Christ today. But I think sometimes it's more appropriate to say, Lord, thank you that my life is an opportunity to be an ambassador. Now, Lord, I wanna speak on your behalf constantly through the day and see if you might bring somebody into my life that needs some cultivating. They're in a place where words from you going to be well received and I wouldn't know that unless I was just practicing being an ambassador everywhere I go and all that I do because my life is an opportunity I'm not waiting for the person to come up to me and say I'm your opportunity no every person that I encounter is my opportunity now Lord I want to be sensitive to your spirit to be your spokesperson what do I need to say on your behalf to bless this person. I remember a young lady that I was speaking with one day um, on the campus at A&M and I was walking around talking and so I met this young lady and I was just talking about something. She's like, I don't really don't wanna talk right now. I was like, you know what? I, I know this is gonna sound really weird to you but I just, I just feel like I need to say something to you right now and you can take it or leave it but I'm gonna say it. She goes, okay, what? And I said, God, really? loves you and I believe he wanted me to tell you that right now and she just broke down crying 
I don't do that very often, but in that moment, I was like, you know, I think I'm going to say this. And why does that happen? Well, we've got to adopt the mentality. I believe that my day is filled with divine appointments, that God is in control of all things. He's placed me where I am, when I am, to be a spokesperson for him. My life is one big opportunity. Okay, Lord, I am going to live today in expectation. You want to speak to somebody through me. So help me speak on your behalf. Make sense? Makes life exciting. All right, what about being afraid? Number two, I'm afraid to share the gospel. A lot of people, um, myself included, have experienced fear in the face of an opportunity to talk about Jesus with somebody that does not know Jesus. Am I alone? Anybody else experienced fear along the way? Okay. So here's some different categories of fear that I think we've probably felt along the way. Um, Sometimes people are afraid of messing up. Sometimes people are afraid of not having the right answer. I just don't know what I'd say if they asked something that I didn't know. It might make them not think that it's believable if I don't know every answer that they might ask a question about. Afraid of being rejected. I just don't want them to say no. I'm afraid that they're going to not like me. I mean, these are genuine fears that we feel. Afraid of making someone angry. This is particularly um, applicable in the area of family. Sometimes we are afraid to tell a family member something because we're just afraid it'll make the whole family a mess if we do it. Sometimes we're afraid of losing a friendship. Sometimes we're afraid of some other things. And whatever it is, that fear always leads to silence. And, and we all who have been there, we hate that. We don't like that. We feel bad about that. We wish it were different. And then we just end up in silence. And that kind of reaction to fear encourages more reaction to fear that reflects more fear than faith. The only way to combat the reality of fear, and we all will have it in some level or another at different times, is to act on faith in spite of fear. There's no magic formula tonight that I'm going to give you that will resolve your fear. Fear is an opportunity for the enemy to silence you. But fear is just as much an opportunity for your faith to propel you and you to do something that you know is God, not you. Some people look at fear as a real problem. I kind of look at fear as one of those things that can give me an opportunity to practice faith and see God work in a way that I know it was not in me to do it. And so instead of looking at the moments when you're afraid and giving the enemy opportunity to bring silence, you see that opportunity of fear as an opportunity to experience the blessing of pursuing faith and make a choice. I'm not going to react to the fear with silence, I'm going to react to the fear with faith and press on into obedience. It is not exactly easy to do that, but that's the way of the disciple. It's the hard way, but it's the better way. There's an interesting study back years ago with the North American Mission Board, and they did a study on what percentage of people that are um, not churchgoers would be comfortable with a total stranger coming to their front door 
knocking on their door and say, would you come to church at our church? We meet over at First Baptist Church, Georgetown, there on university, and we'd love you to come visit our church. Total stranger, knock on the door. 53% of people said they would not be bothered by that. Now, I suspect if I asked you that, you'd have probably said a lot lower percentage would be really bothered by that. But this particular study found that well over, a little bit over half, it's okay. And I think that's really good to know because the reality is that most people will have the graciousness and the kindness to hear about an invitation to come to church. They may say no, but most people don't mind. And the people that say, oh, thanks for inviting me, are likely the people that will listen to even more. There's a high percentage of people that will listen to what you have to say, even if you're a total stranger. I think that's pretty interesting. I know sometimes we get afraid and we feel inadequate, insecure and uncomfortable, but remember who you are and believe it and act in accordance with what is true. It's not true that you can mess it up. You're Jesus' spokesperson. He can take whatever you try to do on his behalf and do miraculous things with it. That's just who he is, and that's how he works. Believe it. You can't mess this up. If you don't know the answer to a question that someone asks, well, you know your default is not what you know, but who you know. I don't really know how to answer that question, but I know who does. And he's telling me right now that you probably ought to just trust him. His name's Jesus. You know, I mean, people, you know the person who has the answers. Don't let that bother you. It's nothing to be afraid of. Press on in faith. Believe what is true. All right? Address your fears with faith. All right, number three, the sin of silence. The sin of silence. So fear drives us to silence. Silence is a sin. Luke chapter 9, verse 26 Luke 9, 26 says, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in, in his glory, in the glory of the Father and the hope of the holy angels. What that tells me is that the sin of silence is pretty serious. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him. I mean, I don't know how to soften that. what it means to be a disciple so here it is if we're going to be reaching people here's the thing you've got to talk to people you've got to talk to them you, you can't be silent and be obedient and we all have conversations with people every single person in this room can have some form of conversation with another human being we can all do that. And the Bible's just encouraging you to have a conversation. You can open conversations by saying things. How are you doing? Good morning. And I'm going to get into a lot more uh, specific ways to have conversations. What to do when somebody says something. What to do when somebody asks something. Next week, I'm going to give you a lot of tools to use. 
But it's really no more difficult than just having a conversation with people. I think sometimes we get into the position where we think, I'm going to love someone through what I do. And I'm going to trust that the Lord can take my actions and be a witness through what I do. And we justify our silence. And I just want to gently remind you that loving indeed what we do is inadequate to accomplish a clear representation of Jesus and his appeal to be reconciled. My actions by themselves will not convince anyone they need reconciliation to God. Because my actions in themselves, if they're really loving for a lost person, would help, will help that person think I'm a really nice person or they're really a special person that deserves special treatment. That's pretty much it. The ultimate outcome of my love in Christ without words is I'm a pretty important person. I'm glad they're serving me. Or that person's really kind and I think they're a great guy. We have to um, make sure our works, our deeds are accompanied with what we say. We cannot remain silent. And certainly Jesus has demonstrated that very example. Not just loving us in deed, but loving us in deed and word. If, if, if Jesus Christ had just come die for us and then said, well, I don't want anybody to tell anybody about what I've done for the rest of time. Just let it stand that I did it. Well, we'd be in big trouble, right? We put everybody else around us in the same precarious situation because we are conveying to everybody around us Jesus doesn't want to tell you anything about what he did if we're not telling people what he did. That's the message our deeds are giving. He doesn't want to tell you. Yes. Right, he does several times. He says, please don't tell anybody what's going on. So he's unfolding a purpose there in three years where he is introducing the kingdom on earth that is at hand. And he's doing it in a way that would give credibility to all that he's going to say. So he's saying, I am the Savior. Here's the taste of the kingdom. He introduces the taste of the kingdom, but his ultimate goal is to make a way into the kingdom. So part of the reason that he didn't want all that getting out is because he was having a, a method of displaying the kingdom and it was occurring at a certain pace in a way that he was wanting it to occur. Well, it didn't go that way. They did whatever they wanted to do and so he just managed it. Sometimes he went out of town and got away from everybody but his goal was introduce people to the kingdom and it then at some point stop introducing people to the kingdom and then make a way into the kingdom. And so not only did he say, I don't want you to tell anybody, um, because he had a way about going about demonstrating the kingdom. But he also at one point said, I'm not going to heal anybody else. I'm done showing them the kingdom. Now I'm going to make the way into the kingdom. And I'm going to invite people into the kingdom through faith in me. And then they're going to be about telling others about the kingdom while they're waiting for the kingdom to come. And so that's some of what's going on there. He's just unfolding in a particular way. And uh, anyway, it's a great question. All right. So, avoid the sin of silence. Um, Romans 10, 13, and 14 says, Whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Romans 10, 
13 and 14, but listen to verse 14. Verse 14 says, How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? How will they hear without a preacher, a proclaimer, a spokesperson? We are the spokespersons. I read another statistic some time ago that about 85% of all conversions, people coming to Christ as Lord and Savior, um, happen on average after a person has heard the gospel seven to eight times. So a person needs to be spoken to on behalf of Christ seven to eight times on average before they make a decision to follow Christ. I think that's interesting when we think in terms of speaking on behalf of Christ. You may not be the person that brings somebody to Christ, but you might be one in a line that is necessary for their hearts to be turned to the Lord. So speak on his behalf. All right, number four, is, relation, is evangelism relational or confrontational? So I hear people talk about evangelism using two, two terms. One is lifestyle or friendship evangelism and they describe it like this man i just seek to build a relationship with them i want to be friends with them i want to build enough relationship with them that they're ready to hear about christ and they'll respect hearing it and i know them better and so i've got to build a relationship with them and so they're waiting for the subjective green light to come on after a certain period of friendship that has been built before they tell them the gospel okay so that's one description and then the other description that i'll hear is confrontational you just go up and you say, you need Jesus right now. And you get on your knees and you pray and give your life to Christ. Amen. You know, I mean, it's just in your face, confrontational, no relationship whatsoever. Devoid of relationship, all about confrontation. And I simply think that that description of evangelism is terribly wrong. Terribly wrong and unbiblical. And uh, so, so here's what I'd like to do. I'd like to give you another perspective on what evangelism really, really looks like. So that, that idea of confrontational versus relational can really lead to disobedience because each opportunity requires the sensitivity of the Spirit in your life so that you're a spokesperson for Jesus in the way he wants to talk to that person. So in the very beginning of meeting someone, evangelism is always relational and the confrontational nature of it depends on what Jesus wants to say through you. Some of it can be somewhat confrontational. I wanted to, when I said to that young lady, I want to tell you what God wants me to tell you. He loves you. Well, that, that kind of felt confrontational to her. But it was relational. I, I cared about her enough to talk to her. I was not concerned with just spouting out this truth so that I could blast her with it. No, that's not the way of Christ. The way of Christ is to seek and save the lost, to talk to the Zacchaeus that nobody would talk to and say, hey, I love you, man. I want to come to your house. I mean, all evangelism by Christ's disciples is relational and loving and is born out of a sensitivity to the Spirit of God so that we speak the words Jesus wants us to speak. Make sense? If we resist sharing the gospel with people in our lives because we're not close enough to them as friends, uh, we have a serious problem because it's really difficult to become really close friends with lost people. Okay, let's think this out for a second. Biblically speaking, our closest friends are supposed to be believers. It's clear in the scripture. 
our closest friends would be believers, how could we become super close with friends that are lost? Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that, that we don't pursue friendship with lost people. That's not what I'm saying. But how close do you really think you can become to a lost person who doesn't share your values, your beliefs, your agendas, your perspective, and your, your pursuit in life? How close can you really become? No, see, if you, if you really love somebody who's not a Christian, you should seek to speak for Christ to them because that's the most loving thing you can do. The greatest way you can hate somebody who's not a believer that's in your life as a friend is to not tell them about Jesus as soon as you possibly can. It's so important that they know. It's so inconsistent of us to say we believe that Jesus Christ died for our sins and everyone who does not believe in him is going to go to hell forever. It's so inconsistent of us to believe that and then not be compelled to tell people that do not know him that we say we love, value, or care about. That is not friendship. The best way you can build friendship with a lost person is to talk to them about Jesus as you bless them for being in your life, you being in their life. Bless them. All right, makes sense. All right, what, one example here that I'll just throw out to you, you can read later, John chapter four, the, the story of the, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, I love this story. She comes to the well and Jesus is there and he actually strikes up a conversation which is very uncomfortable for her because she's like, Jewish men don't talk to Samaritans, much less Samaritan women, why are you talking to me? And Jesus is like, hey, I'd like to talk to you about some water. And he just breaks out a conversation about what she's doing. And the next thing you know, he's talking about living water. The next thing you know, he's talking about the Messiah. And the next thing you know, he's told her, I'm that guy. And the next thing you know, she's running home. And she's running home just to talk about what she just experienced. And when she gets home and she starts talking about it, she's talking about it to people that most likely don't have a very high opinion of her. But because of what happened with her and Jesus, they are really interested in coming to see. Do you see what the Bible tells us? The Bible tells us that it's not my friendship with a lost person that is most important in evangelism. It's my friendship with Jesus that's most important. Because when I've been with him and he's changed my life, that friendship that I have with Jesus is going to be the thing that a lost person really connects with. They're going to see that friendship and say, I want to know more about that. It's not how I befriend them that makes them want to listen to me. It's how Jesus has befriended me that makes them want to listen about him. Make sense? All right. All right, number five. We must practice the power of prayer, the power of the word of God, and the power of your story when considering encounters with others whom you share, with whom you share the gospel. Evangelism is a spiritual battle. This is a war. And you're battling not the person that you're sharing with. You're battling the powers and the principalities and the arguments that stand against the gospel, seeking to prevent people from coming to Christ. We are in a spiritual battle and we have got to implement the power of prayer, the power of the word. We have got to implement the power of even sharing our own story. So don't overlook the opportunity to practice prayer for people in your life who do not know Christ. You can make a neighborhood map or you can make a top 10 list 
Like I just make a top 10 list or a neighborhood map and put all the people in my life that I want to be praying for to come to Christ. Say, Lord, send somebody in their life to speak on Jesus' behalf to them. Enable me to have the right boldness and courage and the words to speak on your behalf. And I start praying for them. I want to share Christ with every one of them. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've done that through the years, be able to share Christ with people on that list and see them come to know the Lord. It is fantastic. What I've found is if I'm not praying for these people, I am not battling spiritually. So pray. And then the power of the word where you're speaking the word. That's why we're memorizing scripture so we can actually speak the word to people. doesn't matter whether they know I'm speaking the word or not, but the word is powerful. It penetrates the hearts. It cuts through the attitudes and the thoughts. And it is powerful. Use it. And then your own story. Don't overlook the power of your own story. The Samaritan woman, she told her own story and she'd be back home and it brought the whole town out. They couldn't believe her story. They wanted to go find out for themselves. Tell your story. And you can begin to do that. It's part of the assignment in your worksheet that you can download or pick up afterwards. Number six, I just want to talk about true obedience or success when it comes to um, evangelism. What is obedience or what is success? So don't think about the results. A lot of times we get wrapped up in the results. If I were to ask tonight, I'm not going to do it. But if I were to ask tonight, how many of you in here have led at least one person to Christ? Like you have shared Christ with them and they have prayed to receive Christ and they're now walking with Christ. I suspect that the number of people that raise their hands that have done that would be extremely low in this room. Because, because statistically, that's the studies. The studies are that less than 10% have ever experienced that in the church. Well, that simply should not be. However, the results are not up to us. I found that about 1 in 10 to 15 people that I share Christ with will make a decision somewhere along that. I've got to be sharing with a lot of people to see people come to Christ. And so I just, gotta, I just want to share. I want to be a spokesperson wherever I go, grocery store, bank, whatever. I'm going to talk about the Lord. You've got to share a lot to see results. But the results aren't up to you. They're up to God. You can't save anybody. You're not responsible for the results. You're not responsible for how many people come to Christ through your witness. You know why some people will say, I've never seen anybody come to Christ through, through, through me? Because they just don't witness. It's not because God's not ready to give results. It's because you don't witness. If you start witnessing, there's a good chance you're going to have results. But even so, if the results are lacking, if that's not your success. That's not your obedience. Your obedience is in just being faithful, being a spokesperson. Everywhere you go, leave the results to God. You might be person one on the track to eight. You might be person eight. Some people sow, some people reap. Be okay with God's call in your life. Just get the seeds out there. You gotta get the seeds out there. Trust the results to him. That's obedience, getting it out. All right, now I wanna take a quick look in our last few minutes at Matthew chapter nine. Matthew chapter nine. Verses 35 through 38. Matthew 9, 35 through 38 says, Jesus is going through all the cities and the villages, teaching in their synagogue, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, healing every kind of disease, every kind of sickness, seeing the people. He felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. 
Therefore beseech the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. All right, when Jesus looked out on the people, what Jesus saw was a plentiful harvest. You know what the harvest is. The crops are ready to come in. It's time to go out and get the fruit of the labor. It's time to go out and bring, bring the fruit into the barns. It's time to go out and get the grain out of the field and enjoy the opportunity of experiencing the bounty of the hard labor of the work that's been done. When Jesus looks out on the fields, he says the fields are plentiful, but the workers are few. And he says you need to pray and ask the Lord to send workers. That's what he says to his disciples. And I think it's very important that we understand Jesus' perspective of the field and his perspective on the status of workers. God wants workers in the field because this field is ready. You think about Georgetown and Williamson County, the field is wide unto harvest. Where are the workers? We should pray for God to send workers and then be a part of the answer. But we'll only be a part of the answer if we really believe the field is wide unto harvest. So think about what Jesus is saying about the field when he says the field is ready, is white unto harvest. Jesus is saying that when he looks at the field, when he looks at the harvest, it's ready. So, so did everybody respond to Jesus that Jesus shared the gospel with? No. But what is he saying? I'm not talking about their immediate responsiveness right now. I'm talking about the condition of their souls right now. And the condition of their souls are such that they need a laborer to come out there and tell them what I am here to tell them. You look at Georgetown and Winston County, not everybody in our area is ready to come to our church, walk the aisle, and say, I want to be baptized. But do you know which ones are and which ones are not? No, nope, neither do I. I don't know the, the place they're at in terms of their responsiveness, but do we know the condition of everyone's soul who has not placed faith in Jesus Christ? We absolutely know that. And so we can say about Williamson County that this place is full of people who are ready to hear the gospel because they are not saved. And we've got to be telling them. Doesn't matter how responsive they are in a given moment, they are ready to hear because of the condition of their souls. And we are called to be the laborers. And if we're not speaking on behalf of Jesus, then how will they hear? I am convinced that one of the unique calls that God has placed on this place is that we should be a front runner of laborers in the harvest. I'd rather be a front runner than lagging behind in disobedience. But that's up to each one of us. And I can promise you this, if you'll go home tonight and begin to pray, God, would you send laborers into the harvest? Lord, I'm willing to be an answer to that prayer. Send me. We will move in the right direction. But if you go home tonight and say, Lord, please send laborers in the harvest and raise them up and send them out and I'll keep praying for them. But 
we, we won't experience anything here but deadness. Because the Bible says that, that those who are ashamed of the Lord, the Lord is ashamed of on the day of judgment. If, if we decide to live out shame of Jesus Christ in our community, we have just demonstrated we are not disciples. The only reason Jesus can get away with saying, anybody's ashamed of me, I'm not going to claim them at the day of, of judgment. The only way he can get away with saying that to his followers is Jesus knows that my followers aren't ashamed of me. That's the only way he can say that. And the fact is, he knows that my followers will tell people about me. So if you, if you haven't been doing it, you know the greatest remedy for that? Lord, send laborers out and make me one of them because his grace is sufficient for you to cover every sin in your life and to restore you to what he has made you to be. You are an ambassador, a spokesperson for Jesus. And if you haven't been speaking for him, don't be caught up in what does that mean about me? No, start speaking for him and then you know exactly what it means about you because when you've heard his word, you've responded to what he said and now you're following him because his grace has cleaned you restored you and moved you forward you have great joy if you're here tonight you say man I don't know how I can do that I don't know how in the world I can do this this is too big for me this is too difficult for me come back next week and I'll keep helping you and I will not leave you to yourself don't anyone in this room say I cannot do this I must not be a follower of Christ that would be a wrong way to think about this if you think I cannot do this but I want to follow Christ. I know he saved me. I don't know how to do this. Well, that's why you have a church. You have a church family to walk alongside you and love you and teach you. I can tell you the number of people that I've said, hey, come with me, and I want you to watch me share my faith. I want you to check this out. I mean, I had one person, couldn't even pray in public, scared to death to talk to anybody about Jesus. I said, come with me, let's do this. And you're just gonna pray for me while I talk to them. And I'd go out and I'd, I'd, I'd pick the hardest, most difficult person. In fact, sometimes I'd say, you just pick a person. Any, I don't care who it is. You pick it. It doesn't matter how hard you think it is. You pick the hardest person you think to share with. We'll go share Christ with them. They'd pick them out. I'd walk up, just start a conversation, share Christ with them. Weird things would happen. Sometimes bad things, sometimes good things. And then after you're done, I'd sit down with that person and say, okay, what's going on? What are you thinking? What would you see? What would you learn? Can you do this? Maybe. Okay, let's go do it again. Watch me. Go out there and let's do it again. Watch me. Okay, now it's your turn. I'm going to pray for you and you're going to do it. I'll be here. I'll help you. You can do this. And they do it. And you know what? The rest of their life, they're sharing Christ. It wasn't that they weren't called to be a spokesperson. It's just they're scared out of their wits. It's okay to be scared. We can help you. That's why we're the church. So we can all move together. You are not meant to do this on your own. You're going to hear me say this on Sunday. This is Sunday's sermon, I'm so excited about preaching. You cannot do this on your own. And if you feel like you're stuck, it's okay. doesn't mean you're not a follower. You attach yourself to somebody in the church that's not stuck, and they'll bring you along, and someday you'll be able to help somebody else do the same thing because we love God, love people, so that other people can do the same thing. That's what we do. Make sense? Feel okay? Be encouraged. Take this honor and run with it. For the glory of God. Amen. All right, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you so much for your goodness. We want to be laborers. We thank you for the, that the 
fields are wide unto harvest. Lord, I pray that the churches of Williamson County would be filled with new believers, that you would bring forth a great movement of your spirit through your people who are willing to be spokespersons for you. Lord, we long to see a movement in this place that ripples to the ends of the earth. Lord, use us to bring about those kinds of changes and works in this place. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all for being here.